Well, our text this week is one that draws from a familiar series of songs in Isaiah. And, and the way that this series is, is written out, the way that we've uh, organized it, uh, we don't get to go every single verse and every single chapter in Isaiah, which is unfortunate because uh, this particular uh, song is considered a servant song. It's the second of a series of servant songs that appear at this portion in Isaiah. And unfortunately, this will be the only week uh, that we'll look at one of the servant songs in this series. So perhaps that might be a future series uh, for us to do the servant songs over a series of weeks. But if you look at Isaiah chapter 42, uh, you'll see the first of those, those psalms, of course, Isaiah 49 then later on in 50, and then in beginning in 52, uh, you'll see the rest of the, the servant songs there. The identification of a servant, of course, can be seen throughout Isaiah. We see different characters who are called uh, God's servant. Even Isaiah himself uh, has that uh, moniker tied to him. Uh, but a number of different people are referred to as servant as we look at that particular word. But it's important that we note here that in these servant songs, we have a very concentrated picture of a very particular servant serving a very particular function here. The theme itself is an important one in Isaiah, and it's, we might even say it's Isaiah's major contribution, one of many major contributions to the Bible. That might not be too much to say that at this point. But I know one commentator, Barry Webb, actually says this about it. He calls it one of the richest strands of Isaiah's thought. So as we step into this text, we're stepping into a stream that holds rich, rich things for God's people uh, throughout all seasons, through all generations, even today. So taken together, uh, these servant songs, and this, of course, like I said, is the second of those servant songs, they speak of one, or they speak of a collective uh, who will lead the nations, uh, who then will be abused and mistreated, uh, and then will be rewarded. So if we were to summarize them, that's, that's kind of what we see across the span of these songs themselves. But of course, the question we ask here is, who is the servant that is described here? And it depends on who you ask. So let me give you a couple options here. Option number one, Isaiah. Isaiah is the servant that's mentioned here. Seems like a rather fitting candidate, particularly since the book is called Isaiah, right? So that seems like that would be a fitting candidate there. And of course, in Isaiah chapter 20, verse 3, I've already mentioned uh, that he is referred to as my servant, the Lord speaking at that point, and so he's identified as God's servant there. But he's not alone in that. There's other individuals, of course, who have that same title uh, tied to them. Um, and Isaiah's candidacy doesn't check all the boxes. We read through all the, the servant songs themselves. He doesn't check the boxes that are required to say this is the role that Isaiah held. It seems like it's a bigger thing than even Isaiah himself as this great prophet was able to accomplish. So we go to option number two. Option two would be Israel. Israel. So that's, you're going, wait a second here. I thought Israel died way, way, way back with the patriarchs. The nation of Israel. So the people group, the ethnic group here. And this identification draws on what we read in verse three of our own text. No, it's not completely without challenges. Of course, you see Israel mentioned there. Uh, namely that if you get to verse 5, you'll note that our text would say that Israel is bringing back Israel. So that seems like that doesn't make a whole lot of sense there. We also have later in the songs, the individual becomes an individual uh, at one point. I should note here that this particular interpretation of the servant songs as being Israel is, is held today uh, by modern Jewish adherents. And so they would see Israel as the, the interpretation here that's talking about the nation or the people not necessarily the nation, in our sense of nation, but the people of Israel is probably a better way to think about that. Of course, that draws on uh, history here, uh, this role of light to the nations that we see in verse 7 of our own text, 
follows that mission tradition that stems all the way back to Abraham, and maybe even a little bit earlier, but thinking back to Abraham and that promise that his families, uh, through Abraham, the families of the earth, would be blessed. And Israel is certainly chosen for a purpose. We know that from Exodus 19, when the people are organized there, uh, that God's people were to be this priestly kingdom, a holy people, that they're called to be a people who mediate between God and the nations, and their role would be one of reconciling the world to God. And so we know that that lofty charge that they had. So Israel is one of the options there. So that's the first two, Isaiah and Israel. And then, of course, option three, which is, I imagine that folks at home right now are just going, you've just been waiting for option three. Like, you've been, you, you know the servant songs, and you're like, here's option three. I've been to Sunday school, and it's the classic Sunday school answer. Whenever you're asked a question in Sunday school, the answer always is Jesus, right? You say Jesus, and you'll probably get most of the questions correct at that point. Well, it's more than a Sunday school answer here. It's more than a Sunday school answer. Early Christian writers have observed that Isaiah's servant corresponds directly to the Jesus story itself. Light to the nations in verse 6 is picked up in Luke's gospel, actually Luke chapter 2, verse 32. If you remember at that point, uh, Simeon, when he meets the young Jesus, uh, he, he identifies him as light to, of revelation to the Gentiles. And so he's drawing on that same tradition from Isaiah. But... It might not be that easy. Interpreting the servant songs might not be that easy to say that's, it's just about Jesus. We might miss a major piece of responsibility here, one that Isaiah is going to tap into beginning in chapter 42 and leading up to the chapter just before ours. That the nation itself, that this people who have been called back to be brought back home were charged with a very particular responsibility. That they were to live into that responsibility. And we learn in chapter 48 that they didn't live into that responsibility. And so this morning, what I want to do is, certainly Jesus is the preeminent servant. Clearly, Jesus is pictured in the servant songs. He checks the boxes. He mirrors what Isaiah is writing here. The song also tells us something about what it means to be under servants. Be those servants that are serving under the preeminent servant, Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we're going to turn our attention to that. What is our responsibility today? What responsibility do we hold as God's people in light of what this particular servant song is speaking. Well, Yahoo News carried a a story a few years ago about a toddler who was trapped uh, in their grandparents' car in a grocery store parking lot in England. All right, so just try to picture that. We're not in England right now, but try to picture this. Child is trapped in the car in England in the grandparents' car. Emergency responders come. They smash out the back window. They smash out the back window see if they can try to rescue this child. But none of the responders could actually reach any of the locks when they reached through. They couldn't fit through it. It was this uh, Volkswagen Beetle, so they couldn't fit through far enough to actually get one of the locks to open and stuff. And so they were at an impasse there. They didn't know what to do. Well, we oftentimes expect that our emergency responders will be able to respond in the moment of crisis. That's why we call them. Of course, at this critical moment, these highly trained and experienced professionals had to call on outside help. And who'd they find? They found a five-year-old who was standing by, a five-year-old named Zavi Ahmed, just standing there. Zavi was able to crawl through that broken window. He was able to retrieve the keys. He was able to open the door to this car, rescuing the toddler in that parking lot. And as we learn and as we hear about a story like that, We're reminded that sometimes these unlikely folks, 
We're expecting the emergency responders to be able to do the job, but sometimes the most unlikely person on the scene ends up becoming the hero in the story. And that story can be told many times over. Now, we should have suspected it from Zavi here at this point because he was dressed as Batman when you look at all the pictures, that he would have been the one who stepped in. Of course, this theme of an unlikely character serving in God's mission of rescue, this theme of someone that the least likely person you would expect to step up is found throughout Scripture. A foreigner named Rahab assists in the invasion of Jericho. We know of a widow and also a foreigner named Ruth who becomes an ancestor to Israel's most famous king. We know of a son who was deemed too young, a son named David, who became that famous king. How about the poor young woman named Mary, who becomes the mother of the Christ? Or a fisherman named Peter, a fisherman named Peter, who becomes a famed apostle? Or what about that zealous persecutor of the church named Saul, who became the church's greatest advocate. So we know this theme of the unlikely person who ends up becoming a servant, who ends up becoming uh, the very thing that you never expected from them, that they would step up and take on this role in the story, and in this case, in God's mission. Of course, this theme is repeated in our text as well. Our text this morning talks about the servant of the Lord and, and says that they were called before they were even born. They are named in their mother's womb. We see that in the second part of verse 1. God has the servant in mind before they themselves can even imagine this, this role for themselves. But true to the biblical theme that the unlikely are called to serve, this servant is called when they are nobody. They're called when they're nobody. They don't have any skills, they don't have any language. They haven't shown themselves to be particularly effective in anything. They're just in their mother's womb. We don't know what their potential is. We don't even know who they are. And yet, God calls the nobody in verse 1 and later transforms them as we see in verse 2. That this nobody is transformed by God for God's mission. And in verse 3, we'll see that they will ultimately bring glory to God, which for a nobody is quite something. But the servant here, and it's important for us to note this, doesn't necessarily see this in themselves. Note what it says in verse 4 of our text. But I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my cause is with the Lord and my reward with my God. As one commentator observes here, this same servant who is said to be hidden in God's hand and quiver, we see that in verse 2, looks to be hidden from themselves, in verse 4. The Hebrew here for labored, that word that stands behind that, what we have translated as labored, has a basic meaning of growing weary. You recall that the same word appeared last week in Isaiah chapter 40. And when it's coupled with what we have as vain in our translation, the implication is that the work has been done to no purpose. The servant further enjoins here, Uh, or further joins this text here with a line that says, I have spent my strength for nothing. That word for nothing there is tohu, which is desolation, and vanity. In this case, the word there is the word for breath or vapor in Hebrew. A softer summary might say that the work of this servant has been, or their, their efforts here, have been fruitless. 
But if we got very specific here with the language, the results of their work is desolation and vapor. That's what they've accomplished. Can you say nothing in a stronger way? It has come to nothing. It's mere desolation and vapor. Nothing comes of their efforts. That's more than a modest assessment of one's work. The servant seems to be rather despondent at that point, if we were to pause the text there. If that's what all you came up with in your work, that would leave you in such a place. Does the servant even know the importance of their role? They recognize that the role that they stepped into, how important that was. This might actually be a common amongst God's servants. I know in my many years of working with young people, particularly volunteers working with young people, I've heard that story told many a times where a volunteer just couldn't see how their efforts, their service was making any difference. You go on a retreat, go on a mission trip, go for an all-nighter, and get at the end of those and just ask the question, did it make a difference? Get to the end of the program year and ask the question, did anything I do accomplish anything? Maybe it was just for them, desolation and vapor. Having worked with young people, sometimes events ended as desolation. <laughs> especially the rooms we worked in. We don't always see or recognize the significance of our faithfulness. We don't always see that. Perhaps our best efforts don't look immediately effective. At its best, we might shrug and conclude something like this. Ah, that was, that was nothing. At worst, we too grow despondent and conclude that our efforts are in vain and we stop trying and we give up. It doesn't take much for one of these servants to come to feel that their efforts are all for naught. And although the language sounds strong, they come to feel like they are ones deeply despised, abhorred by nations, the slave of rulers, as we see in verse 7. But even when we are at our worst, when things are really not coming together in the way that we hoped or imagined, we are to take comfort in knowing that what we see is not how God sees it. Our vision's not God's vision. Our perspective is certainly not God's perspective. Consider how verse 7 ends. Kings shall see and stand up, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. This picture of kings and princes giving homage to the lowly servant points to something far more expansive and than even what the servant might have imagined. But what exactly is that expansive picture, the expansive vision? Clearly, God intends here in this text for Israel to be restored. We know that in Isaiah 40, that God's intention is to comfort God's people, that that is close to the heart of God. That's God's desire to see that people might be renewed, revitalized, and that they might be brought home. We saw that in Isaiah 40. We see that now here in Isaiah 49. So clearly that's God's desire. And in verse 5, it uses the language of bringing back or gathering God's people. And notice the order there, Jacob and then Israel. Go back to the old story. A change of name. A transformation. There's bringing God's people back to God. It's all over this text. If God's people were sensing that exile, though, was the end of their story, they were wrong. 
God had something better in mind for them. But at the same time, God also has something bigger in mind, not just better. And this bigger is noted in what the writer says in verse 6. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the survivors of Israel. Wait, what? It's too light of a thing? Restoration of your people is too light of a thing? Bringing us back home is too light of a thing? What? That's too light of a thing? Look how the text goes on. I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. What's going on here? God's people are being gathered and restored for a more expansive purpose. The salvation of the world. Said another way, God's people do not exist for themselves alone. And their restoration is not an end in itself. This wasn't lost on the early gospel writers. This picture of God's mission is not lost on Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Each of which portray the church in its mission of going out or being sent. Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Mark 16, go into all the world and proclaim the good news. Luke 24, thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and arise from the dead on the third day. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Or how about John chapter 20? Jesus speaking to his disciples. He says to them, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. It's not lost on the earliest Christians. And it shouldn't be lost on us as well. It's a popular quote by William Temple that fits very appropriately here for us. The church is the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not its members. And that's our calling. It's not just our calling, it's been the calling of Christians through every generation. And said even more, it's been the calling of every servant of the Lord through all ages. And we see that in our text. That's what a servant nation was called to in Isaiah's day. And that's what God's people are called to today. So in the season of preparation, I want to offer a few words of preparation and conclusion here for us to consider. One of the vicious effects that COVID exacts on faith communities we know COVID has a, a deadly effect on people. We know that. But one of the byproducts of COVID that has a vicious effect on faith communities is, is the disruption to our life together. That we are not together. Could be said another way here. The way we meet has been altered significantly. You know that. You're watching this on YouTube right now. It's been altered, and, and there's something lost in that. Well, not long from now, we're going to return to meeting in person. The session this last week approved a target date of May 30th to resume in-person worship. We're going to meet in person before that. We actually are planning a sunrise service that will be in person outdoors for Easter Sunday. But we're going to come together, and it's going to happen sooner than we might imagine. And of course, emerging from the foxholes that we've dug for ourselves over the last year, that's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy to come back together. We might desire that, but it's, it's, it's not going to be easy. 
We've grown into certain patterns. We've understood the world to be a certain way. And so coming out of those foxholes won't be easy. And I suspect that we'll discover soon enough when we come together that the landscape has changed. That the world that we left behind a year ago, the one that we thought was a pause button, has actually come to a complete stop. And that we're going to be invited as a people to not just return and resume, but to return and to step into a very particular role. I think the role that we're called to is to be servants of the Lord. So as we come back, we come back and we join God's bigger mission. We recognize our calling as servants in that. Reminds us of who we are, whose we are, and how we are to live. And so as we come together as a people, we own the experience of our own vulnerability. And I want to offer the words here of Juliana Klossens, who is who's a, a biblical a scholar out of South Africa. And she says this in reflecting, reflecting on this text. She says, We are to be a source of comfort and consolation to others who might be in an equally precarious situation. This means truly recognizing others as equals who are in need of care and comfort, standing with those who are hurting, and breaking the chains of those who are imprisoned by those forces and powers that pine on people's basic human rights. In short, we are called to serve as the Lord's servants, as underservants of that preeminent servant, Jesus Christ. We are called to act justly as we hear throughout Isaiah, and we're called as we hear in Isaiah 49 to bear witness once more to God's salvation. My hope here is that for each one of us as we live into that, as we live into that role of a servant, even though we might feel like it's not working the way that we hoped it would, that we look forward to the one who has called us and that day when the preeminent servant looks at each one of us and says to us, well done, good, and trustworthy slave is how it says in our translation that we use here. I like the older translation. Well done, thy good and faithful servant. That we might hear those words resounding in our ears even now as we prepare for our own return as we come home to this place and as we look to serve not only this community, but all the world. Let us pray together. Lord, we thank you on this morning that as we have gathered around your word and as we have heard once more of your great love uh, for us, reminded of Jesus Christ, that, that one who is the preeminent servant, who has served us, has ministered to us, has cared for us, who prays for us even today. Lord, as we have paused and we have considered these things, as we have pondered them in our hearts, Lord, we pray that you would even now grow within us a resilient faith, that you'd help us to trust where you are drawing us as a people to serve. We do not want to return back to the way things were. Instead, Lord, we want to inhabit the calling that you have for us today, and we want to live into that promise that you have for your people tomorrow. So Lord, help us to live lives of faithfulness even now as we prepare to come back. We know that we can continue to be a witness, those revealing your grace even now. 
For your glory alone we pray this in Jesus' name.